0: Well, we are going to start a a new series this week. Um, I think it's running five Sundays. Um, But, you know, check the sermon card in the back. Um, We're going to be in Jude. Jude is a little tiny book in the back of the New Testament. Um, Tiny book, but absolutely loaded with content. A book that's often overlooked, not dug into with much depth. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on it. So we are going to work on that together. So if you guys would, turn to Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter in Jude, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The first hundred years or so of this new republic, the United States of America, were a mixed bag religiously. That's true now, but for different reasons, Um, although we're always a product of our heritage. We're always a product of our our DNA, so to speak. But America, after all, was a a product itself of the Enlightenment. Uh, it, It was deeply steeped in Enlightenment thought with deep devotion to the philosophies of men like John Locke. And on one hand, religious toleration uh, allowed for a wide variety of Christian denominations and non-Christian religions to thrive in the new world. On the other hand, philosophical deism, the idea that God is the creator and above and beyond this universe, but has little to do with the universe, it doesn't intercede, it doesn't listen to prayers, no miracles or anything like that. Uh, this philosophical deism gained tremendous traction inside and outside of American churches, And within the churches, that almost always included Unitarianism, the belief that God is not a trinity. As the United States left the period of the Enlightenment and moved into the period we call modernism, there was a growing suspicion of historic Christian belief. Frankly, in many cases, it was not suspicion, but flat-out rejection. Some were openly arguing for a modernistic version of Christianity, a Christianity that the modern mind could accept and tolerate. And while the philosophical basis of modernism was a bit different than that of the Enlightenment, within the sphere of religion, it often led to similar conclusions. For instance, a denial of the miraculous. And so, by the late 1800s, uh, many of our churches in this country and many of our denominations were, were facing a bit of a crisis. In the 1890s, the Presbyterian Church is a great example. The Presbyterian Church Uh, faced a dilemma. A, A man named Charles Augustus Briggs had been appointed the chair of biblical theology at Union Theological Seminary, and he proceeded to teach that the Bible was not the inspired word of God, and the church itself, along with reason, could enlighten some to salvation apart from God's word, along with a number of other beliefs that were not in line with orthodoxy. The Presbyterians put him on trial for heresy in 1893, and he was stripped of his ordination and removed from the church. But modernism would continue to grow in the churches, and, and those who defended historic belief were being pushed back on their heels. And the Presbyterian church continued to tolerate more and more disbelief on these historic Christian positions. And it came to a head in the late 20s and the early 30s, a, a man named Jay Gresham Machen had been a New Testament professor at Princeton for a number of years when, when Princeton was still something of a Christian seminary, and, and distraught by the spread of modernism, Machen began writing very pointedly and prolifically about the incompatibility of Christianity and, and what was then being called liberalism. Not, not political liberalism, but a religious liberalism, a loosening of concern for Christian beliefs that was a product of modernism. And so... Machen and others took steps to guard Orthodox Christian belief within the Presbyterian church and as a result Machen who affirmed all the historic doctrines of Christianity and all the particular doctrines of Presbyterianism was put on trial for heresy in 1933 because of the Presbyterian's contention that he was defiant of the church and he was convicted and excommunicated for believing the gospel In 35 years, the Presbyterian Church had gone from excommunicating heretics to calling the Orthodox heretics. And it's hard to underestimate how important this historical event was, though you you probably didn't read about it in your historical uh, textbooks in high school. The great thinker Francis Schaeffer wrote, A good case could be made that the news about Machen was the most significant U.S. news in the first half of the 20th century. Considering the first half of the 20th century included two world wars, the start of the Korean War, and the formation of the United Nations, that's quite a statement. And the Presbyterians have merged several ways over the last decade. They've split several ways over the last decades, but often over these very same issues. And hold that thought for a while. But I even had neighbors growing up who were part of the the particular branch of Presbyterianism that that was the uh, natural heir of that movement. And they went to uh, interview a new pastor. This was probably 20 years ago now. And they were scandalized to find out the pastor openly just rejected the Bible. In Jude one through four, really, in the entire letter of Jude, Jude has a message to the Christians he's writing to contend for the faith." And, it, and it's particularly the heartbeat of these first four verses. Although modernism wasn't typically friendly to Christianity, and neither was the Enlightenment, neither were the philosophies and the, and the movements in Jude's day. In fact, I think we see a common pattern, the culture of the world will always be at odds with the culture of the kingdom. And so there will always be a call to contend for the faith. However, in this message, Jude breaks it down like this. Jude has three quick messages for his congregation that he's writing to, perhaps congregations, plural. Don't panic. Take up arms. And know your enemy. Don't panic. Take up arms and know your enemy. The first idea, don't panic. It's swallowed up in the greeting of this letter, so we have to look into that a little bit. And ancient letters begin with the name of the sender, uh, then the recipients, and then usually a prayer or wish for the recipient's well-being, and an introductory statement. So our letter, Jude, begins that way too. The letter's from Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. This is almost certainly the Jude who happened to be one of Jesus' brothers. I won't get into all the details about how we know that, but if you're interested, I can point you to some good resources. Talk to me afterwards, email me. Um, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him during most, if not all, of his earthly ministry. Uh, the Gospels are clear of that. But James, his brother James, and his brother Jude at least, we don't know about the others, those two at least came to faith in Christ in time. And if you're confused, yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. It's plainly stated in the Gospels. Uh, And and moreover, it's almost certain that those siblings were born from Mary, which means, no, Mary was not perpetually a virgin. That's how the birds and bees works. However, uh, more interesting to us is the recipients. And the recipients, Jude writes, are to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. So there's three descriptors for these recipients, and they're important. Jude's a short letter. You may have read it already, uh, seen as how I was preaching on it, and you know, we, we put that out there so you guys can read it ahead of time, and you know, maybe you didn't stop at verse 4 because it's so short. And if you did, you know it's a pretty scathing letter. And there are some deep causes for concern that Jude has, and we'll get into those. But before Jude gets into these very pressing, very urgent matters, he wants to reassure his readers, generally speaking, don't panic. If you're reading this letter in faith, you can have some confidence in light of some things I'm about to tell you, because you're the called. God's calling, when the scriptures use that language, Harkens back to the Old Testament. Israel was called to be God's people uh, by his sovereign hand and, and a people they became. Uh, so now God has called a people his church and calling is similar in this sense to inviting but it's a much stronger word when God is the subject because it's, uh, it's sort of an invitation uh, by which God does not get denied. And so Paul can write in Romans 8 and we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the calling of Christians is predicated on him predestining them. It's a big topic for another sermon. Um, And every single one he calls is justified. And every single one he justifies is glorified. There is a no escape clause. He finishes what he starts. And we notice that the calling here is tied to two other words, and this is important. The called are beloved in God. The the verb indicates that something that happened in the past and it continues to have an effect in the present time. uh, They were being loved with the result that they are being loved. It's an ongoing reality for them. And the locus of that love is in God. So those who are caught up in the majesty of ...of God are bathed in his love. And being called is inseparable from God's love. And the second verb says kept. It likewise suggests a definitive action that was taken in the past... ...that has a continuing benefit to those who are kept... They were kept such that they are being kept. They, it's kept as in a sense of guarded or, or protected. I'm sure we've not plumbed the depths of the love of God, but I'm definitely sure that we're not particularly familiar with the idea of being kept. And you might be even more surprised to find that Jew doesn't just say we're we're kept, but we're kept for Jesus. The fact that they're kept indicates that there are threats that could undo the called. So they are guarded, they are protected. They need to be guarded or protected because there are external threats that could absolutely destroy them. There are spiritual dangers which could spiritually wreck the elect, but they have been kept. And Jesus put it this way. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So if you're part of the people of God, you realize... That you were being kept, that you are being kept, that you will be kept. Your future is secure because no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. But did you also realize that you are kept for Jesus? And this is important because the fact that we are kept for Jesus points us to several truths. First, for the Christian, we realize That our own selves are not our highest good. Our highest good is the glory of Jesus Christ. There is something that we are to be living for and existing for that goes far beyond what I want to do today. What I aspire to be in my life. What I am hoping to accomplish in my my days here. You were called for something so much more than the stuff that this world has to offer. you're being kept for that. You're not being kept for uh, a home, you're not being kept for the perfect marriage. you're not being kept for the job that you want. You're not being kept so that you can retire comfortably. You're not being kept so that you have an impressive career. you're being kept for Jesus. Christ everything aside from that you know it, it can be snatched from us so quickly so there's that that that's the first thing it reminds us is that our own selves are not the highest good but second it reminds us that we collectively the church we're, we're likened to a bride awaiting a bridegroom, Jesus. And there's an eschatological idea. Eschatology is end times stuff. It's a study of the last things. That's eschatos, last. Um, and we Christians are taught that Jesus will return. And when he does, we'll be symbolically wed to him for eternity. If we were lost... It would be Christ's loss. But we are kept for him. Now Jude's going to get into some deep stuff, but, but step back and consider that if you're a Christian, this reminder to not panic has enormous repercussions. No matter how difficult obedience to Christ might seem, and at times it is very difficult, he has promised we will not fall away. He will give us the strength to endure. So much so that um, whether or not you endure in the Christian faith is the surest test of whether you were ever in the Christian faith. Those who are brought into the Christian faith truly and surely are the ones who will endure to the end. And if you fall away, the scriptures testify that it's evidence you were never there in the first place. And so the surest test of faith that we know in scripture is that you endure to the end through the difficulties and trials of life. I've spoken recently both here and in private to some of you and I'm becoming more and more wary that obedience to Jesus Christ will be difficult for American Christians. That hasn't always been the case, although in the early 1900s it often could be. But I do think our culture is making demands of loyalty from a variety of sides. And we will more and more be pressured to throw our hat in some ring of loyalty to compromise at the edges our devotion that should be solely given to Christ. And I don't know how difficult that's going to become. I have no idea how bad that's going to become or or how soon, but... It sure seems like we are being demanded to throw our hats in one ring or another or another right now, but take a deep breath. He holds us and if we're his, we'll get through it. There are times too when it's easy to feel unloved and we live in an ironically isolated culture with a million ways to connect with one another, we are a society that feels incredible and extraordinary loneliness. We live in the most prosperous time in history. If you look at the suicide rates around the world, you'll find that the most prosperous and interp- and, and, and affluent nations are interspersed with the poorest nations. It's as if our pursuit of happiness never led us to joy. Maybe you feel that fruitless pursuit of joy in this world. It's always a pushing, a striving, a moving, a struggle. If you just get around this corner, then you'll have, you'll have the easier right I just get my income above. You know, I'm not asking for a lot, but if I was making 45, if I was making 60, then things would be, things would be fine. If I, if I could just find a, a wife, then things would be fine, you know. If I just had a place that was my own, that was set up the way I wanted it, then things would be, then I'd be good. And it's, it's, But it's always something else. Look look back. I guarantee you, and you, I know like you guys are, are younger than me, but even in your short lives, you've probably seen it. There was something that you had to figure out. There was something you had to sort out. And then there was something else later. There's always another there's always another thing before then you'll have it all worked out. Then you'll have your life exactly the way you want it. Maybe it's not about having your life exactly the way you want it. Maybe, on the other hand, you've just resigned yourself to find mere satisfaction. Mere satisfaction. This is this is this is the best I can hope for out of life, and so I'm I'm good with it. The Christian faith teaches that you can have an unmatched, an unparalleled joy in being joined with God and enjoying him forever because he can't be taken from you. That we were created for this very purpose. And when we accept this purpose, we're restored to it. And and if you're interested in in hearing more about that, I just encourage you, mark it on a connection card or a prayer card. We've got a a short course called Christianity Explained that we'd love to walk through with you, talk to you about. For those of you who are Christians, who understand this, who get this, joy is in Christ above all else, don't panic about what Jude needs to bring to your attention. In verse 3, Jude begins to get into the introduction of his letter. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So it sounds like Jude has been writing on another subject or he's planning to write on another subject when apparently he got wind of something that was a little bit more pressing. He intended to write about their common salvation. It's difficult to know what he meant by that exactly, It might be that Jude, a Jew, was writing to a Gentile audience, but they shared the same salvation by the same Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what a lot of thinkers think, and that's possible, but we don't need to speculate. The basic idea is that despite their differences, they were in this together. And interestingly enough, although Jude does not have a different focus, or the Jude does have a different focus, a different emphasis in the letter, Nonetheless, the idea of their common salvation still becomes an important theme of the letter. It just takes a different tact. Christians can speak of salvation both as present and future. And, and I should back up to say something about what we mean by salvation. The Christian message, which is called the gospel, understands that we are in need of saving. And we're need, we need this saving because we're in terrible peril. Like most major religions and even secular philosophies, we believe there is wrong and evil in the world. We call that evil that is in our own hearts sin. We differ from many or most other ideologies in the nature of sin. Christianity teaches that sin is fundamentally a rejection of God as our proper Lord, our rightful King. And because God is good and He made us for Him, that means that our evil is a rebellion against Him. And as a good King, He must deal with us as treasonous traitors. And so we are quite literally in mortal as well as spiritual danger from which we need a rescue. So when Christians talk about salvation, They're talking about a rescue operation. We need a salvation. We need a rescue. Since God is loving, he desires to forgive us. But since God is also perfectly just, he can't see rebellion go unpunished. And and that's where Christianity is unique among all the religions of the world. Because God became a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus lives a life without rebellion against God, without treason. So he's sinless. And this man, God in the flesh, voluntarily takes a death sentence, allowing God's wrath to be poured out on him in the place of sinners. And so the sin is punished and justice is maintained. But love is extended to rebels. And so sinners can be saved from the just wrath of God by turning away from sin and trusting in Christ's vicarious work. And Jude shares this salvation with his audience. As much as he wants to focus on this, there's something that is more pressing. Instead, he says they need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a call to take up arms. The word to contend here is not a wimpy word. It's related to our word agony. Its root describes a struggle, sometimes an athletic competition, but this is an intensified version of the word. It's a call to arms. It's a battle. There is a war to be waged, and Jude needs these Christians on the front line. And it's the Christian faith itself that is in jeopardy. Jude calls it the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And say a few things about that. First of all, it's been entrusted to the saints. It's been delivered to the saints. It's been handed over. Uh, It's more like a transmission. The faith has been passed on or transmitted to the saints. It's a word that would be used to pass along authoritative codified teaching. And that means that the Christian faith was already this early in the first century, probably just 30, 40 years after the death of Jesus, already recognized as a fixed set of doctrines and ethics. It was stable. It could be authoritatively passed on from the apostles to the rest of Jesus' followers, the saints. If Christianity had been an invention of hundreds of years later, Jude could not have written that way. But the word once for all is added here, and that's important because the Christian faith was delivered once, And it needs not be repeated. It's a mistake that many cults fall into, like our friends across the street, who believe that there was a great apostasy and the entire church left the Christian faith within the first two or three centuries of Christianity. But that their organization, many, many, many hundreds of years later, recovered and revived the true Christian faith. That's a lie. The faith was delivered to the saints once for all time. It's a non-repeatable event. It's also a reminder that we no longer need apostles because the faith has been handed over to the saints. It's in the possession of the saints. And it will not be lost by us. But it still must be fought for. Collectively, the church, the saints, have the faith once for all, but individuals and groups within that might be threatened and might prove to not be among the saints, though they look like it outwardly. And that's where Jude goes next. Here's why they need to contend for the faith. They need to contend for the faith because there are enemies. And they need to know about them. Here's the thing. We don't, we don't know what the specific threat was. Jude doesn't name names. He describes. Which is probably some wisdom in that. But I'll say that for another day. But Jude speaks generally. And that generality speaks well in our age too. He writes for. This is the reason to contend for the faith for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We really need to consider the implications of this because they're astounding for Christians. And it should wake us up out of any stupor we might be in. We don't need to panic, but we do need to take note. Some people have crept in unnoticed. We get the sense that these are not good dudes, especially if you read the rest of the letter. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that in a minute. But notice they've crept in and that they weren't noticed. Effectively, what Jude is saying is that some outsiders have come inside, probably false teachers, and their presence or their teaching has become an accepted part of the Christian community. That presence is a danger, and no one knows that they're there. Think on that for a moment. That means it's entirely possible for a group of Christians or an individual Christian to entertain false doctrines that could wreck their faith and not even be aware of it. And if you absorb that and and you, you sit on that for a moment, that should be a cause for concern because then your next thought should be, Is that my church? Is that my soul? Our tendency is probably to think, well, I'm better than that. I've got it. Jude is writing to people that he's got utmost confidence in, in the norm, in the general, but even there, People that Jude has utmost confidence, and that he can remind them to not panic. You're chosen. You're beloved. You're kept. But I'm worried that maybe not all of you are. These are like a uh, like a spy movie. You know, we've we've got this. What's the thing that's in the, the news? I, I don't know the the woman's name, but there was this. this apparently, at least this is the accusation. There's this Russian woman, right, who's like infiltrated the NRA and and some the ranks and, and posing as a republic or not a republic a, uh, a Russian um gun rights activist. And and but really she's just manipulating uh political forces, at least it's is the accusation against her within the United States. So she's she's slipped in as a friend and uh, even though she's different, you know, she speaks with this Russian accent and all this stuff, you know, but she's accepted as close enough and, you know, at least it, whether it's true or not, I haven't looked into all the news story on this, been too busy this week, but it's fascinating that, that somebody could slip in an organization who doesn't belong, if it's true, you know, and and undermine it from within. The reality is, unless we are vigilant, these dangers to the faith can sneak up on us. They're disguised in various ways. Things that we love, admire, or respect can be a Trojan horse. I see different varieties of how we do this in in culture, in in the church. There's the adopter. There's the person who will just flat out, adopt the deeply held values of the culture they're in, and tries to Christianize them, they try to, they they try and make it, you know, you see this with politics, you can see this with a lot of things besides politics, but you can, you can talk to people who think that um, the democratic platform is the only way to be a Christian. And you can talk to people who think the Republican platform is the only way to be a Christian. And they're just taking culture's values, they're trying to make them Christian, and that's how they live. Trying to make the culture's values. It's not just politics, though, but it's an easy example. You see it with certain ascetics. They, they reject all the trappings of this world. And they use strong self-denying ways to reject everything that possibly could be associated with America and somehow that makes them seem spiritual because they're so at odds with the world. There's the warriors among us. They think that it's their job in life to fight the cultural battles. And to reclaim what they think is the best or spiritual side of it. There's the love struck. They think that the cheap and highest value of all is love. And love means don't hurt. And they just want everyone to feel good all the time. Even when feeling good is actually the most hurtful thing. And then there's the grace lovers. Sounds good. They all sound good. You put them in the right terms. But they so pervert the idea of grace that they care nothing for holiness. And that's close to what we're dealing with in Jude. One of the most dangerous ways that these individuals sneak in is when Christians are asleep. And so one of Jesus' final commands to his disciples Makes the garden of Gethsemane. Stay here. Stay awake. Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Stay awake. And there's too many of us who are asleep. We don't know the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so we don't clearly see the slippery paths that are taken by these intruders. And the good news in that, Jude says that they're destined for condemnation. We'll tackle more in a a future sermon because that's what he kind of gets into in the next verses after this passage. Notice how he describes them. He describes them as ungodly, which is a word to describe those whose lifestyles are at odds with what holiness demands. And then the most specific charge we have here pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. It seems that from the earliest days of Christianity, there was a perverted, corrupt, maligning of Christianity. And it goes like this. Salvation is by grace, and it's by grace alone. That is this common salvation that is shared by Jude, his readers, the members of this church, and millions of others around the world. And it was not earned. Salvation was not earned. It's freely given through faith. Faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. But that led some to scandalously claim that if salvation is by grace, then by all means, let us live out the pleasures of the body in this world. Sin is forgiven. And I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. So I'll live the way that feels best now that can take different forms as well whether it's rejecting the law of christ uh you know you've probably met or know or heard of or in your own heart you reject the law of christ you act as if there is no law of christ that there are no demands on you as a follower of jesus christ and so you choose to live the way that makes you feel good Or you excuse the law of Christ. You know there's a law of Christ, but you live in a way that you sort of just excuse your behaviors and the ways that you don't fall in line with Christ's demands for you. You want to have an excuse for why it doesn't work for you. Yes, you know that that's true. But it's hard. That's good in a, in a perfect world. I don't live in a perfect world. But these Christians, so-called Christians, were living in a way in which they were probably urging others, and certainly for themselves, Living in such a way to satisfy whatever made them feel good in their bodies. Now that could be very broadly speaking, uh, but in general, the word would point to things like indulging in food, indulging in drink, indulging in sex, indulging in uh, again things that have a very sensual nature to them that are connected to the senses, that are connected to the body, things that make you. Feel good. In our culture, that would probably also include uh, drugs and alcohol and things like that. It's, it's a living for the pleasures of the body. They were redeemed. They were forgiven. They were going to heaven. And so, what does it matter if they have sexual relations outside of marriage? What does it matter? They have grace. So what does it matter if they look at porn? They have Jesus. So what does it matter if they get a little wasted at the party? Jesus died for that, didn't he? I do think, though, it's even more subtle than that. This idea that we're for Christ. And we don't want to live for Christ. And we want to take an easy path. We want to take a path that doesn't have pain. We want to take a path that's smooth. There's no rocks on it. Our sensuality is sometimes the the heels and soles of our feet. We want them to be comfortable on our journey in life. But the straight narrow way of the gospel isn't a smooth and lovely path. But the reality is here, listen to what Jude says that in their excuse of how they live for their own pleasure they deny our only master and lord Jesus Christ the bible is 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 replete with examples that this is no way to live paul paul responds to the criticism that Well, if we're saved by grace, then we can live the way we want. He says, by no means. May God forbid it. And and let such a person who would teach such a thing just be utterly cast out. Paraphrasing a little there. But that's his emphasis is no. That's not it at all. You've been forgiven. You've received grace. You've been saved. Then, by all means, live for holiness. Live for righteousness. Don't see how much you can excuse. In fact, arguably, if you're living in such a way that you can see how much Jesus' grace can cover you, you don't know Jesus at all. Get out. Let's be real here. If we're seeing how much we can get away with in the love of Jesus Christ, you don't know the love of Jesus Christ. And so Paul can write in First Thessalonians 4, 3-8, But this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Pause there a second. We're all, aren't we always trying to figure out God's will for our lives? And yet, the Bible tells us God's will. It's, it's never whether I should take this job or not. The Bible never will tell you whether to take this job or not or marry this girl or marry this boy. The Bible never will tell you who to date, where to live. It's not there. Look, but here, here is the will of God, your sanctification. That you grow in holiness. That's the will of God. And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out the things that God doesn't tell us to do, and we don't do the one thing that God does tell us to do, which is to live for him. Then Paul elaborates that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And he says in verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's strong stuff. That doesn't make you step back and evaluate. You're either like super Christian, or you just don't get it. And since I'm not sure there's any super Christians, I'm scared for you. I'm really literally scared for you. Sensuality is this love of pleasure, what makes a person feel good. And Jude says that if you are making the grace of Jesus into something that lets you live your life in the way that makes you feel good, whatever that looks like for you, and maybe it's alcohol and, you know, getting drunk and wasted, and maybe that's, Um, sex as you see fit and, and those kind of traditional forms of sensuality, but let's broaden the scope here. Are you living your life for the pleasure it brings you? Because that's a form of sensuality. Then Jude says in doing so, you deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We have as Christians, we often are very focused on orthodoxy. By orthodoxy, I mean right belief. And we are really concerned that people believe the right things. So, do you believe in the Trinity? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead? Do you believe that if you place your faith in him and you repent of your sins, you turn your back on him, that you will be restored in right relation with God and be forgiven and receive eternal life. But oftentimes we overlook orthopraxy. Right action. Right living. And orthopraxy for the early Christians was just as important as orthodoxy. And they're connected. If you've got the wrong idea of God, for instance, if you've got the wrong idea of grace, it'll lead you to wrong practice. But it's very often... Our practices that we see, we don't see beliefs, we see practices. And too often, we've been really good in the church, big church with this big C, of making sure that everybody believes the right thing and not caring how they practically live that out. And so we we get abuse and we get, um, you know, Adultery, and, and, and we get uh, tolerating rapists in our churches. Uh, we talked about that last week in our, our members meeting. Um, you know, we get all sorts. We get people who pilfer money from the pots because we are, we're concerned that they believe the right things. Not that they live the right things. But what Jude reminds us is that our holy conduct is just as important as what we say is true about God. And if what we say is true about God then gets mixed with the practices and habits of a fallen world, we have just as much denied Jesus as if we had said, He is not God. And that's a scary proposition. So, brothers and sisters, if you're here, contend for this faith because there is a war for the soul of the church of Jesus Christ. There's a war for your very soul as an individual seeking to compromise the good gospel and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and to turn it into something perverse, and wicked. And it very well may come in without you noticing it. And so we have to stay awake. if you are living this way, if you are living your life for you, if the pursuit of holiness is not a concern for you, make that right today? Because it may well be that you are not in the faith. Because repentance isn't a prayer. Repentance is a total heart change. It's a total life transformation. And we've got to take Jude seriously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we hear all these harsh words from your servant Jude and you tough to swallow. I know my temptation, God, is to you Shove that out of my mind. Just reassure myself, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then just don't think about it because then I can't be convicted if I don't think on it. Oh, God, don't let me do that. Don't let us do that. Let us dwell on your word. It's ramifications. Let it sink deep down in our hearts and convict us of sins on the surface and convict us of rebellion that is deeply buried that hides wake us up out of our stupor let us watch and pray that we don't fall into temptation let us guard one another so that even when one of us has our eyes grow droopy and weary and threaten to close that our brother or sister slaps us across the face and wakes us up hands us a cup of coffee and says let's go Make our eyes open to to see the ways that the the loves and pursuits and passions of our culture might secretly sneak in. And that we might adopt them as our own to, to perversely baptize them and call them spiritual. Give us the strength to stop making excuses for why I can't follow the law of Christ. Why doing the things that he calls me to do aren't relevant for me or not practical for me or just not what I'm up to. God, don't let us make excuses in our hearts. Convict us of that sin. Help us to bravely contend for the faith. In Jesus' name I pray. We pray. Amen.